welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Before we get to today's show, can you take care of something for us? Please rate and review Health Now in your podcast platform of choice. It will help other listeners find out about us. And if you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show too. You wouldn't want to miss an episode, would you? Thank you. Okay, now on to the show. We've all been there. You pick up your phone to read a text or check the weather. And 20 minutes later, you realize you've been sucked into a screen time vortex. Emails, Instagram, news alerts, games, TV shows. It's incredibly easy to fill your time with your smartphone and basically never be bored again. Of course, people also use their phones as tools to organize their lives. Your calendar, shopping lists, bank accounts, even your alarm clock are probably all on your phone. All of this causes the average American adult to spend almost four hours every day on their smartphones. And most of us just pick them up about 50 times a day, according to some estimates. It gets to the point that many people start to feel uncomfortable when they don't have access to their phones. Our guest today urges everyone to pull their heads out of their screens and reconnect to life. Catherine Price is a science journalist whose book, How to Break Up With Your Phone, led her to found the website ScreenLifeBalance.com. The goal isn't to try to completely ditch your phone, but to get people to think more carefully about when and how to use it. Catherine Price, welcome to Health Now. Thanks so much for having me. You have a story that you tell about your newborn daughter that really started this whole project about screen use for you. Tell us what happened. Well, about four and a half years ago, I'd had a baby, and I would say that I was never someone who was really obsessed with social media or even into social media or spent much time on those kind of traditional time sucks on the phone. But I definitely spent a lot of time on the phone. And I had a moment late one night with my daughter when I noticed that she was looking up at me and I was looking down at my phone. And it was really a wake up call for me because I could see the scene as it would appear to an outsider. And I just thought to myself, this is not what I want my daughter to think of when she thinks of a human relationship. And it also wasn't how I wanted to be experiencing motherhood for myself. And I also knew from my background as a science journalist that babies' eyes can only focus, you know, like a foot or so away from their face, specifically so they can bond with the person who's holding them. And so there seemed to be something profoundly wrong about not returning her gaze when I was the only thing she actually could focus on when we were in that situation. <laughs> right. Trying to have a sweet, tender moment and <laughs> instead of connecting, you're doing something else on the phone. I I was scrolling through eBay. We had renovated our house recently or our kitchen, and I was looking for old doorknobs and hinges on eBay, even though we had finished the renovation project and I no longer <laughs> needed to do so. So it was especially um, a silly, <laughs> silly thing to be doing on my phone oh, man. In, in those moments. <laughs> so yeah. how, did, how did that lead you to, you know, the research and actually writing your book? Well, it made me start to think more critically about my own habits. And I had a background in mindfulness to begin with, so I already was kind of primed, I think, to pay attention to what I was doing in the moments of my life and see if it actually was what I wanted to be doing. So after I had that moment, I talked with my husband about it and we decided that we both could use some help when it came to how we used our phones. And so we started taking these 24 hour breaks from our phones from Friday to Saturday nights uh, just to kind of see what it would be like, which was very interesting. I recommend people try it because it really is eye opening in terms of your revealing your dependence. And typically what happened to us and what has happened to the people who have told me about their own experiences is you feel horrible on Friday night. <laughs> you're like very twitchy. <laughs> you can't believe how many things you're trying to look up on Google or, or decide that you have to buy um, off of Amazon in that moment. And then the next day you feel this surprising sense of calm as you realize that you actually are enjoying the 
sense of time slowing down, which is a real thing when you get off the phones and just being present and, and doing one thing at a time. It's actually very relaxing. So we'd been doing that for a while. I started to read other books on the subject. And I realized at that point, this was like 2015, there were no books that actually gave any solutions beyond just maybe a page of simple suggestions for what you could do to permanently change your relationship with technology so that you could have kind of a harmonious long-term relationship where you're not getting rid of it because that's impractical, but you're not letting it control your life. So I I like to say I, I like to turn my personal issues into professional projects. And so that's what I did. I, I started writing this book and that was, yeah, about four and a half years ago. You wrote the book, How to Break Up with Your Phone, and you started a website around this, screenlifebalance.com. What is your overall mission? My overall mission is to help people get back in touch with what matters to them in life. So not to be too grandiose, but I think to <laughs> live joyful and meaningful lives. And I think that technology just happens to be one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now when it comes to figuring out how to do that. And I think for me, what I realized is that technology had started to be something that I used to fill my time. It was filling my time for me. And what I wanted to be doing was choosing how to fill my own time. And what I've come to realize, and more and more people are becoming aware of this as well, is that if you don't take a proactive stance, then your time is going to be filled by your technology, which in turn is being created by people whose motivations and incentives are probably not the same as yours when it comes to your definition of a joyful and meaningful life. Because their goal is to get you to spend as much time as possible on their apps and websites. And they're really good at doing it. And I would say that most people do not set one of their life goals as spending maximum time on Instagram. <laughs> you know, right. you want to have connection, <laughs> you want to have fun, you want to travel, you want to see new things, you want to actually experience your life. So really, I think that is my goal is to help people become more aware of how they're spending their time and redirect it so that they can feel good at the end of their day and at the end of their life, I guess, about how they actually spent their time. Yeah, often you won't hear many New Year's resolutions about spending more time on Facebook. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one's like, you know what I want to do? <laughs> I think I should scroll more. Probably more time on Twitter is what I need. Yes, exactly. I think yeah, right, right. <laughs> more tweets. Yes, <laughs> tweets all around. <laughs> right. You offer a series of challenges on your website to get people started, sort of on this breakup, as as you're call, as you're terming it, with their smartphones and other technology. And I actually did one of them, but. Well, more on that later. But first, I want to ask, the data around how many hours people spend on their phones is pretty shocking. And it gets even more shocking when you talk about all the time that people spend with all screens, including, you know, TVs and computers, etc. But using your phone isn't like smoking cigarettes. It's not inherently bad for you. What is the health or wellness case to be made that you should spend less time on your screen every day? I think there's a number of health and wellness arguments that can be made as to why we should consider spending less time on our screens. Obviously, it's not going to give you lung cancer, right? Although I, I'm not entirely convinced about that that radiation has been studied enough, but you know, it's not the same as a cigarette. But if you start to think about, well, a number of things, we can start with how phone sense screens are interrupting our sleep. That's a huge one. Mm -hmm. um, there's been lots of research done. It's not controversial at all to say that, you know, anything less than seven or eight hours a day of sleep can have impacts on our long-term health and increase our risks of long-term serious health conditions like heart disease or stroke or obesity or type 2 diabetes. Um, so anything that interrupts your sleep is not good for you. Yeah. The fact and that people are waking up in the night to check their phones or even respond to messages is kind of, um, kind of a problem. 
Well, yeah. Well, if you think about all of our phone habits in the bedroom, they're really not good, right? So most people are using their phones as an alarm clock. So that means they're falling asleep with the phone next to the bed. Most people are using the phone right before they go to sleep. And that's problematic in terms of sleep for a number of reasons. First being that you're exposing yourself to light right before you're trying to go to bed. Now, the screen light typically is a blue light, which mimics daylight. And when you see daylight, it tells your brain, unsurprisingly, that it is daytime and that you should be awake. So if you're staring at your phone right before bed, you're essentially giving yourself jet lag. Now, a lot of people use the night shift feature or a filter to make the light more yellow and more like incandescent, uh, which is good. Definitely should do that. But you're still looking at a light source, probably like 10 inches in front of your face right before you're trying to go to sleep. And you're also, I'm going to bet <laughs> that most people are not listening to the sounds of like forests or like birds chirping <laughs> or, or scenes of sunsets on YouTube. You're reading the news. You're looking at your work email. You're scrolling through social media. Maybe you're watching a TV show. You're doing something that's very stimulating to your brain right before you go to bed. So again, if you consider that like sleep deprivation by researchers standards starts at like less than seven or eight hours a day, it does not take much to really start to deprive ourselves of this extremely important nourishing activity that our bodies need. Then you have the issue, as you pointed out, of people getting up in the middle of the night to check their phones. So there's notifications going off. Get up in the middle of the night, use the bathroom, look at the phone. You see stuff waiting for you. Then that interrupts your sleep. And then we also spend our mornings on our phone. I mean, that has less to do with sleep, but it's still kind of not a good thing. Because if you think about it, if your phone's your alarm clock, you have to touch an alarm clock to get it to be quiet. So if you're using it as your alarm clock, you're guaranteeing that the first thing you touch in the morning, the first thing you interact with is going to be your phone. And that's not good for setting the tone of your day. And that's also not good for your human relationship with whoever may be sharing the bed with you. I mean, on both ends of that, right? Like before bed and right when you wake up, your phone is the last thing you're interacting with before bed and the first thing in the morning. And I think that it's actually having an impact. Well, I know from feedback I've gotten from lots of people, it's having an impact on human relationships. Right. <laughs> so that's just one. I mean, that's just one helping. Kill. We, we could also talk about cortisol and which is a stress hormone that's there to help us respond to and survive physical threats and attacks, like being chased by a lion or something like that. Cortisol is essential for our survival. But again, it's been proven that in the long run, if you have elevated cortisol levels over time, that's not good for you because it increases the health risks of the, sorry, the long-term risks of developing all of these long-term conditions such as heart disease, stroke, et cetera, that we were speaking of before. So this research is is less conclusive, but the idea of being hypervigilant when it comes to your phone, so you're basically training yourself to always anticipate a ding or a notification or some kind of alert that's supposed to get you to pay attention to it, seems that it is spiking our cortisol levels in a way that over time actually could be having long-term health effects. I read an article about this and interviewed a bunch of like neuroendocrinologists to ask if this was a crazy theory. And every single, I mean, I literally said that. I was like, is this crazy? Yeah. And all of them said no. Wow. So it's very, and, and then again, cortisol has to do with the sleep issue too, because anything that messes with your sleep will mess with your cortisol levels because you have a natural rhythm throughout the day of cortisol. So these, all these things kind of fit together to make the case that if you're becoming sleep deprived and you're also keeping yourself in this hypervigilant aroused state. It's not good for your long-term health. Right. And even basic safety issues like distracted driving and... Oh, yeah. Walking. So that's, I mean, 
There are so many health and wellness implications with our phones that I sometimes forget the most obvious ones. And one of the most <laughs> obvious ones is people are texting while they're driving or texting while they're walking down the street or crossing busy intersections, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And I ask whole rooms of people when I give talks about this, does anyone think this is a good idea? Obviously, no one raises their hand. And then I say, well, let's be honest with each other. Who has done that? And everyone raises their hand. Mm-hmm. One hypothesis that I have heard from researchers as to why that might be is that when you are stressed out, when you have elevated cortisol levels, when you're feeling that kind of chronic anxiety, you want to, you're kind of seeking these like anxiety, stress relieving behaviors, for example, having a drink or smoking a cigarette or doing something that's like a quick fix. And that is what you're getting when you check your phone, when you drive. So there's a interesting thing that happens in our brain where when you're stressed out, you're less able to make good decisions. So that could be one of the reasons that otherwise intelligent people are doing things like checking texts or posting to Facebook, you know, while they're driving or driving their families around. Right. I've heard from teenagers about their parents' driving habits, which makes me like never want to get on a road again. They were telling <laughs> me at this talk I was giving in a high school about parents who actually mount their phones next to the window so they can watch Netflix shows while driving. Wow. There are kids on the highway. I was like, I'm never, I'm never getting in the car again. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. That, yes. Not to mention, I mean, watching a television show while driving, there's, there's no one so who much. thinks that that's a great idea. There is oh no gosh. one, you know, like most things you can find like the gray area or like, Oh, I see both sides. No, that is just dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all agree that that is not a thing that Anyone should be listening happening. who does that, please stop. There's so many health and wellness implications, but another thing that really is becoming uh, more common and people are paying more attention to is the effect on mental health that occurs when you are on your phone all the time, particularly social media and particularly with teenagers and particularly with teenage girls. So there's been big increases in rates of depression and anxiety among teenagers and even suicidal ideation and suicide itself. And it does seem like there's a correlation between the amount of time that you spend looking at social media and some of these health, mental health issues, which makes total sense if you think about it, because we're social creatures. We want to have affirmation from our fellow humans. And we're basically subjecting ourselves to look at uh, pictures of other people's idealized, idealized lives for hours a day, which are pretty much designed to make us feel inferior and make us feel anxious and make us experience FOMO, the fear of missing out. And that's a cute acronym that kind of doesn't fully capture how serious of an effect that can have on our mental states. That's true, especially for someone with a developing brain like teenagers. Yes, or someone who's also predisposed to depression or anxiety or any of that. If you already are sort of in going in that direction or your brain is wired that way, then it's going to be even worse. Another health effect that our phones are having on us is actually physical. So going again to the idea that some of these things are so obvious that we almost can become blinded to them because there's so much stuff going on. But if you think about the physical posture when you're on your phone, well, think about the fact that your your head is the weight of a bowling ball. And then look at how people are holding their heads when they're on their phones in kind of this hunched over position. I've spoken to physical therapists who there's one guy in particular who told me that you always used to be able to tell if someone was a dentist if they came into PT because they had this very characteristic like hunch in their upper back and neck from leaning over patients' mouths all day. Hmm. But now they're seeing that all the time because that's what we're doing on our phones, which is really disturbing if you think about young people, like what's, you know, 60 years of doing that kind of due to your posture and your actual anatomy. And then you also, I mean, things like text thumb, text elbow. 
I, this makes me think maybe my texting habits are not so bad because I do not have any physical ailments because of my texting. <laughs> no repetitive but, injuries, yes. Yeah, yeah. But one thing you can do um, just in general as a suggestion is to just keep your hands busy with something else. I've actually seen more people do things like knitting and kind of like handcrafts, like get your hands busy or pottery. I, I coached this New York Times reporter through a 30-day phone breakup, and one thing he did was take a pottery class, and I was like, that's genius your hands are wet and covered in clay, even if you can feel your phone vibrating or you hear a notification, yeah, you're not you can't do anything it. about it. Exactly. exactly. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm sitting up very straight trying to undo the posture of <laughs> leaning yeah. over my phone. <laughs> well, let's talk about how the breakup with your phone actually happens. And I can, I can share my own experience with it. I did the seven-day breakup challenge um, last week. And I have to start by saying... I really thought I had dialed down my phone use in the last couple of years. Like you, I really don't spend much time on social media at all. I don't watch TV shows or anything like that on my phone. But on the first day of the challenge, I checked the – I have an iPhone, so I checked the screen time usage feature that tells you how long you spend on your phone. And I realized I was using my phone a whole lot more than I thought I was. It was pretty eye-opening, actually. Is that a common experience you hear from lots of folks? I do hear that from a lot of people. There's a guy who started this app called Moment that is a time tracking app that I actually like better than the screen time feature. And he's told me that he often hears from people that they underestimate their time by 100%. So in other words, they're using it twice as much as they actually think that that's, they are. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I mean, I, I will say about the screen time feature, I do think there's one weird thing about that. It does lump all your screen time together. So if you were to have spent three hours that day driving someplace new and you were using Google Maps, it's going to count that as phone time. Right. And that's an example where I think, huh, that's a weird business decision on Apple's part because they're essentially saying any use of their product is bad as opposed to a moment in particular lets you separate out certain types of screen time so you can say, okay, I'm all right with using my phone for Google Maps, but I don't want to spend four hours a day on Instagram. So, right. But anyway, yeah, it typically is very eye-opening for people to see how many hours a day they're actually spending. And if you do that math of the hours that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, almost four hours a day adds up to nearly 60 days a year. And I recently did the math on how many 40-hour work weeks that would be, because, and I had to redo it like five times because I, I did not believe it. It's like 36 40-hour work weeks wow. that we were somehow finding time. That's nine months of 40-hour work weeks. They were somehow pulling out of our lives <laughs> for time spent on our phones. Right. Oh, my gosh. That's, that is pretty eye-opening. One of the first concepts in the challenge is to create speed bumps for yourself when it comes to using your phone. Tell us what those speed bumps are and what, they're, what the purpose is. Well, most of the time when we check our phones, we're not even aware that we're checking our phones. And I think anyone listening to this has probably had the experience of finding their phone in their hand and not actually remembering how it got there or what they were meaning to do when they picked it up. I've done that so, about two or three times already today. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You, or you pick it up for one thing and you did have a purpose, but then there was the last app that you had open opens again. And then all of a sudden you're in the spiral and then oh, it's like 30 minutes later. So the speed bumps is kind of a classic mindfulness technique. You just want to have some kind of small obstacle that jolts you out of autopilot so that you actually notice what you're doing. And you can do this in a number of ways. I mean, one thing I recommend to people is just something simple like putting a rubber band or a hair tie around your phone. And the point there is that when you go to reach for your phone, you're going to notice that there's this thing on it and you'll have a split second of being like, why is there a rubber band on my phone? And that split second is your chance to be like, oh, I'm supposed to notice that I just pulled my, my phone out. And then the next step is to actually ask yourself what you're doing. Why did you do that? 
So I came up with an exercise called what for, why now, what else, www. And that's just what it sounds like. So once you notice you pulled out your phone, you ask yourself, okay, what did I pull my phone out for? Did I have a purpose? And you're not assigning judgment to this. You're just being curious. Why, what did you pull it out for? Then you ask yourself, why now? Like why in this particular moment did you pull out your phone? And this is a really interesting one because a lot of times it's emotional. So you would may perhaps be doing it because you're in an awkward moment at dinner with someone, or maybe everybody else at the table pulled out their phones, or maybe you're feeling a little lonely or you're feeling a little anxious. There's lots of different reasons people pull their phones out, but there often is an emotional driver behind it or a situational cue. And then the last, last step is to ask yourself, what else could you be doing in that moment? And the answer could be that you still want to be on your phone. You had a purpose. You understand the, the emotional reason. You're fine with it. And you want to stay on your phone. But that's the moment when you give yourself a chance to redirect your attention and do something else if you want to do something else. So that's the moment I like to say where you actually take back control of your phone. Right. Um, I actually, I did the rubber band trick myself. And even something simple like that, it was amazing. I really noticed how many times I picked up my phone really without a purpose. Like even if I was sitting right there and I knew that I hadn't gotten any texts or calls or anything that I might be checking for. So it really made me think, well, what am I, what am I, what am I doing right now? What's my goal? So that was even something simple, a little simple trick like that was interesting how much it just prompted me to think about what I was doing. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a simple trick that has a ulterior motive there because when I talk to people about their attempts to change their phone habits, they often start just by trying to cut back. Right. And then they fail and then they get frustrated and then they give up. And that makes sense because they haven't actually identified a motive, like what they actually want to be doing instead. And so that's what I hope to give people the power to do is, first of all, to identify what you want to do instead and then just notice when you are not doing what you said you wanted to do instead. And there's really interesting research that's been done on mindfulness training by which I mean just learning to catch yourself in the moment and do exactly what we were just talking about. Ask yourself what you're doing and whether you want to be doing it and what it feels like to be engaged in that activity. That type of awareness has been studied as a way to help people quit smoking. And in the particular research that I'm referring to, the people who went through the mindfulness training were able to quit at twice the rate as the people who went through the gold standard program from the American Lung Association. And in the long run, we're able to maintain that for at five times the rate as the American Lung Association program, mm -hmm. as the control group. And so when you think about the fact that cigarettes are obviously nicotine, which is an extremely addictive substance, more, more powerful than digital technology in terms of the physical nature of it. If that is that, if mindfulness is that effective for cigarettes, I feel it can be even more effective when we're talking about our phones. And I've heard that from people. It's like, once you start noticing what you're doing, something can go off in your brain and you can say, actually, I just, I don't want to be doing that anymore. And that's exactly what happened with the smokers. This researcher, Judson Brewer writes about this in his book, The Craving Mind, where, where some people just said, you know what? I realized that I'd never tasted a cigarette. I had been smoking for I don't know how many years and I never actually tasted a cigarette. And when I actually slowed down and tasted the cigarette, I thought, I actually don't want to do this. This is disgusting. Wow. And it was at that moment when they're like, it no longer became a matter of willpower. It became a choice of who they wanted to be and what they wanted to be doing. Same thing with their phones. When you realize that, oh, wait, I actually don't want to be spending this much time on Instagram because I have other things in my life that I'd rather be doing. And that's the moment at which you really start to take back control. Right. Interesting. I've never thought about extending it to a, a physical addiction like, like nicotine. 
yeah, it's really very interesting. And so that's the point is that people, once they start to notice their own habits, they can begin to question whether those are the habits they want to be engaging in mm-hmm. and how that aligns or doesn't align with how they want to live their lives. Right. Another concept of the phone breakup is to turn the device from a temptation into a tool. Tell us about how that works. Well, basically, people really need to understand, and I think that more and more people are understanding this, that many of the apps on our phones make money off of our attention. The more time we spend on them, the more money the app makers are going to make because they can collect data about us and then use it to show us targeted ads. When I say for people to make their phone a tool and not a temptation, I mean that what you should do if you want to have a good relationship with your phone is to figure out which parts of your phone are actually making your life easier or better or more fun, right? Because there's purely practical apps like your banking app. I don't think anyone's too worried about the time they're spending on their banking app or like (laughs) on Uber. Like I like to say, nobody gets sucked into Uber. So there's a whole group of apps that are just convenient and they do make things better. There's also apps that are truly fun that don't make you feel gross. And then there's apps that can help you build new skills. For example, a language app, or in my case, I have like a guitar flashcard app on my phone so they can try to learn the fretboard of the guitar when I have some down moments and, I'm, and I you know, want to fill them with something that actually is changing my brain in a way that I want to. The problem, though, is that you have all these other apps that are truly temptations that are making money off of stealing your attention from you. For example, social media, uh, games, dating, which obviously has a purpose, but it's designed as are all of those apps in a manner very similar to slot machines, even the news, because the news is making money on it's advertising based and headlines are meant to grab your attention and keep you there. So what I tell people is to start by asking yourself, what do you actually love about your phone? Which apps are making your life easier or more fun? And then which parts do you not love? Which parts, which apps make you feel gross after you use them? Or which apps do you find yourself compulsively checking, you know, when you do that rubber band trick or whatever? And those are the ones that you should either take off your phone entirely or at very least hide them on a uh, interior page in a folder so they're not staring you in the face. So when I look at my phone, I've got a black background. I don't have a picture of my family or a pet or something because then I'm just going to associate my phone with people or animals that I love. I want it to just be a tool. And then I really have a boring home screen. It's not full. A lot of the apps are in folders, so I can't even see the icons. That's a good way to make it less tempting because you're your finger can't go as easily on autopilot to the app's icon. And then I don't have things on my phone like email or the news or games or social media, because I just feel like those are temptations that I don't want to have in my face every time I turn on my phone. And if I do need to use any of those apps or want to use any of those apps, I just install them and then I take them off again. I call that an on again, off again relationship. Because we, we, you know, we forget that it's very customizable. Also, your bottom menu screen on an iPhone, you don't have to have those four apps that they do by default. You could, you could change that around yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, something, of, there's something that feels very permanent about deleting an app. We were talking earlier about speed bumps. And if you get into the habit of deleting apps and reinstalling them when you want to use them, it's another example of a small obstacle that makes it harder to just coast into something on autopilot. Because if you want to check Twitter, you actually have to reinstall Twitter and wait for 20 seconds till Twitter downloads. And in most cases, you're going to find that 20 second wait time to be too long and too inconvenient and not actually do it. So it's another way to make sure that when you do use one of those problematic apps, it's actually out of choice, not just because your brain twitched and you went to it out of habit. 
right? You were just looking for a way to fill some time or something like that. Yeah. Or even, I mean, I would even say like most of the time, it's not even that we as conscious people are trying to find a way to fill the time. Our brains have been trained and conditioned just like Pavlov's dogs or any kind of conditioning to, to just check and check and check compulsively. And the reason there is that the apps are designed to trigger the release of a brain chemical called dopamine, which is our brain's way of recording when we do things that are worth doing again. And that is very important, essential actually for things like remembering to eat or reproduce, but you can also design a product that has dopamine triggers built into it to get us to use that product again and again and again and again. And that's exactly what slot machines do. And there are numerous similarities between slot machines and our phones. For example, not knowing what kind of information or reward is going to be waiting for you when you check it, you know, mm -hmm. bright colors that trigger the kind of, I don't know, <laughs> basis part of our brains that recognize like contrast, like red berries against green backgrounds. You see all sorts of bright colors, all sorts of noises, these intermittent rewards, the social affirmation that you can get from getting a like on social media, just all of these things that are going to cause a reaction in our brains that we're not consciously aware of. And once those dopamine driven habit, habit loops get established, it's nearly impossible to break them. You can change them, but you're going to have this kind of cycle going on and on. It's just how we're built. And I think people really need to recognize that there's a lot going on under the surface when you get into these compulsively, compulsive checking habits. It's not entirely your fault, first of all, because the phone is designed to encourage it. And second, because your brain's doing all sorts of stuff that you're not even aware of. Right. Um, that so you don't, don't really have any up. control of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but so you need to understand that all that's going on in the background. So if you're going to make a change, you need to be kind to yourself. Recognize the forces working against you. Be mad about the forces working against you because it really sucks that there's like all these app makers that are ruining the good parts of the phone you know anyway but you do have the power to take control of your life it just does take a lot of effort unfortunately and right. uh at the moment at least their companies are not their business models are, are such that they're not going to really change their products right um you coach people who are really struggling with the role that screens play in their daily lives um what are the areas where you find people tend to struggle the most or they're the most reluctant to, you know, change their ways? The areas that people struggle the most with all have the slot machine aspect in common. It's the apps that are designed to get you to spend as much time and attention as possible on them by triggering the release of dopamine. So social media is a huge, huge, huge issue for people, both for um, teenagers and adults. It's not just like a teenage thing. It just differs by app. So like older people tend to be more Facebook and younger people tend to be more TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. Uh, news is a big issue. It's becoming a bigger issue. Uh, just compulsively checking the news. One that people really push back on is work email. Right. So you'll find these adults who are like, my teenagers on social media all the time or on YouTube, watching YouTube all the time. And then it's like, well, why do you have your phone at the dinner table? <laughs> well, like, I need it for work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need it for work. I need it for work. And I, I go to a lot of conferences, uh, do a lot of speaking. And when I'm not speaking, I'm like just in the room, I'll look and see what people are actually doing on their, on their laptops and their phones. And the, <laughs> Yeah, they can say it's work, but it's people are not on work. They're like on Facebook. They're doing all sorts of other stuff that is not work. And also, that's just not healthy. I mean, I think that that's a much bigger conversation that 
we all need to be having the boundaries between work and our home lives. And phones on the one side and technology on the one side has the benefit of allowing you to do things like work from home or work remotely. But that also means that work comes with you everywhere. And it's very interesting to me that with email in particular, which is something I'm trying to develop, or I am developing a course, an online course that would help people manage. But we don't have any boundaries with it. And we've never had conversations about what the etiquette should be. So you might be answering emails at 10 p.m. and think nothing about the fact that you just sent the email at 10 p.m. And you don't realize now it's off your plate. You feel pretty good about getting off your plate that someone else on the other end just got a ding from their phone. And now they're reading your email and feeling like they have to respond to it in that moment. And even if they don't, you've actually put that kind of mental load onto their plates. So they're kind of thinking about it subconsciously. You're carrying that responsibility until they answer the email. So everyone's just kind of like, constantly emailing each other and not realizing that it's kind of like mutually assured destruction where everyone's just getting more and more amped up and stressed out. And right. I, I hate email. That's my big problem that when I started screen life balance, the motivation was that I realized I was doing a lot better at spending less time on my phone, but I was still spending so much time on screens because I was spending most of my day in front of my computer. And a lot of that time was with email. And I was like, email is a perfect example of allowing other people to define what you're going to do with your time because your inbox starts to become the structure of your day. And you can spend all day answering email. I know. (laughs) And I didn't want to do that. So anyway, but that's a big one people push back on. They'll be like, you don't understand. I have to check my email. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. You can't walk away from email, unfortunately. Although I did meet a woman who has not used email since 2011, and she is a successful consultant. Oh <laughs> but my most goodness. people, <laughs> I know, but most people aren't going to do that. But you do not have to have push notifications on for email so that anyone in the universe who decides to send you a real message or a spam message like can get your attention in any moment. And you don't have to be sitting there with your email inbox open on your computer all the time. You don't have to be checking every two minutes. You could check once every 30 minutes, which would be a huge improvement for most people, or every hour, or maybe even better, like set several times a day when you check your email and just put a auto response or put it in your signature, what those times are, and then tell people if they need you urgently to call you or text you instead. Most people will not call you. <laughs> right. That's interesting. That's a really good tip. A good a couple of good tips for handling, uh, handling emails. I always recommend people start by asking themselves what they want to do with their time. You really need to start philosophically. Why do you want to change your relationship with your phone? That's something people don't normally do. And unless you have this guiding principle, you're not going to be able to stick to the changes because you'll be trying to rely on your willpower, which is a horrible way to change a habit instead of trying to identify what you actually want and then modifying your behavior to align with what you actually want. Once you've set this kind of philosophical framework, though, one very important thing people should do is to adjust your notification settings on your phone because by default, it's gonna, they're either going to be on or you're going to get those little prompts mm-hmm. every time you, you install an app that says, can I send you a push notifications? You should always say no, <laughs> because those are specifically intended to increase quote unquote engagement, which is an app maker term for stealing your attention from you. And it's so distracting. I mean, I don't think people realize how distracted we are until you turn the notifications off or until you try to take a break from your phone and you suddenly realize what it's like to have quiet. But I also think people don't recognize how many nuances there can be to notification settings. So for example, in Instagram, you can go into Instagram and you can choose which notifications you want within Instagram. It will by default notify you 
like anytime anyone does anything in Instagram, I'm amazed by how many notifications that app has. Mm -hmm. So in the moments when I have used Instagram on my phone, what I do is make it so that it only notifies me if it's a direct message to me or if there's a comment. Like nothing else. I don't want to know about the likes. I don't want to know about somebody starting an IGTV video. I don't care about all that stuff. Then you go within your phone settings and then turn off the notifications for Instagram. And the effect of this two-step process is that turning off the notifications on the phone means that you're not going to get notifications from Instagram at all unless you go into Instagram. And then modifying the settings within Instagram means that if you do go into Instagram, you're only going to get notifications for those things you've pre-selected. Right. So just so things like that. figuring out how, how you want to use the apps and how you want to let them intrude on your time. And exactly. And I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like it takes effort to do this. It's not that straightforward. You actually have to go through your apps per, like I recommend start by just getting problematic apps off your phone. Just experiment with that. You can always put them back on. And then with the ones that you have left, adjust the notification settings. And maybe if you've got a ton of apps, maybe you can do this in little spurts throughout the day and then time that you normally would be spending, for example, on social media instead say, okay, for this week, when I have a couple spare moments, I'm going to actually adjust all these settings and start to make my phone work for me. But you'll be amazed by how the defaults are set in a way that does not have our best interests in mind. Right. <laughs> Another tip that, that I found surprised, I actually do this myself, but I can see how other people would um, perhaps not think about it, is to buy a standalone alarm clock, since most people actually <laughs> do rely on their phones just to tell them the time. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, uh, those still exist. You can still get them. There's <laughs> lots of them. And also a watch. Yes. So I have... I have type 1 diabetes. I have an insulin pump I carry with me all the time, and it has a clock on it. So I always forget this, that people rely on their phones for the time. But I went recently to do guest talks at Miraval, this um, luxury spa that does it has a real commitment to being device-free. And I noticed all these people were still carrying their phones around. And when I asked them about it, they're like, oh, because they don't have a watch. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what time it is and there's not many clocks around, so I can't tell what time it is. So I would recommend to people that like, go treat yourself to an accessory, like get a watch. <laughs> right. And then, and I also, you know, as a related note, doing that is going to enable you to do another suggestion I have, which is that take, you should take regular breaks from your phone. It doesn't need to be the full 24 hours, although I do recommend that, but experiment with, I mean, this is crazy what I'm about to say. This is so unusual, but go for a walk at lunch, like go to lunch without your phone. Just leave it on your desk or like leave it in a room and go into another room in your house. I very much recommend that people create a charging station for their phone in their house for everybody's phones and then try to set a time after which everybody's phones has, have to be in that charging station. And if you want to check your phone after that time, you can, but go to the phone and use it while it's actually charging. So, for example, I have a charging station in my closet because there's an outlet in there. So if I want to use my phone after hours, quote unquote, I have to go into the closet and stand there. And right. it's inconvenient enough that I don't linger. You know, it's not like a cozy armchair. Yeah, so I you're think not little, relaxing on your couch. And yeah. Yeah. Like little modifications like that where you just make it a little bit harder. Again, going back to that speed bump idea can really help you become more aware of your habits and then change them or modify them towards the direction you want to be going. Right. It's amazing. You know, you say it's so rare for people to leave their phones behind or to do something without them, but people really do, really truly do feel that anxiety when they don't have their phone with them. 
what do you say to people who sort of feel like they have a lot of, they worry that they're going to miss something if they don't have their phone with them all the time? Well, I say it's a real thing. Like FOMO is a real thing and likely is reflecting some increase in your stress hormones or causing it because you really are anxious to about not being able to check your phone because we've been so conditioned to think about constantly checking our phone as something that's worth doing again and again because of this dopamine driven reward cycle. Then when you can't check your phone, it really does cause anxiety. You're worried about missing something like a new piece of information or in many cases, you're worried about leaving someone hanging. That's one of the most common things I hear is like, oh, I don't want to leave a text unanswered, right? So it does take work to figure out ways to reduce your own anxiety there. Things I recommend frequently would include setting up an email autoresponse that tells people that you're not checking email in the evenings or you're on vacation or whatever it may be, and then providing them if you want with an alternate form of contacting you or someone else if you have an assistant, for example, so that you can step away from your email and feel more calm. For texting, I think this is a great example of how there are our phones are built for the phone and the app makers, not for us, because think about it. You've had a voicemail option forever. We've had email autoresponders. Why is there not an easy way to just send an automatic text message response to people? You can do kind of a workaround using the iPhones do not disturb while driving feature, but it's kind of, it's kind of a pain because you have to reactivate it every time you want to, if you use your phone, it'll kick you out of do not disturb while driving, but you can use that so that if you, if you want to take say a 24 hour break from a phone, you can put a response that says, I'm not checking and just explain it. And every time I do that, people text me and say, how did you do that? I want to do that too. Wow. So my point, yeah, my point being that, that it's a real thing. Like fear of missing out is a real thing. Leaving people hanging is a real thing that makes people very anxious and that the way to overcome that is to figure out how to reduce your anxiety. Take it seriously and then figure out what do I need to do? What do I need to communicate to people in order to feel less stressed about this? Put something on social media that says you're not checking social media or you're checking it less frequently. You know, I think that we forget that we can communicate with other human beings. That's true. <laughs> There's like ways to tell people <laughs> what you're doing. And also we are just not that important. You're not as important as we'd like make ourselves out to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also I, I laugh at this one myself. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, but what if you go to a restaurant and the babysitter can't get in touch with you? I guess one of us has to have our phones. And then I'm like, how did our parents deal with this? Well, they knew where they were going to dinner. So they just gave the babysitter the phone number of the restaurant. And in a true emergency, that would still work. So it's like, you forget that the world did managed to survive like people survived before that's true. <laughs> 2007 or whatever and the, and those technologies are still there to help us <laughs> when in doubt think like it's 1984 <laughs> right right or 2005 i mean like... <laughs> right exactly <laughs> you've obviously transformed the role that screens play in your own life do you ever find yourself relapsing into old habits with your phone um i yeah, I would say definitely. I, I do like to tell people it's not going to be like a one and done. You changed and now it's all better. I mean, creating a sustainable long-term relationship with your phone is really challenging because it's a device that's deliberately designed to make that nearly impossible to do. It's not exactly, but similar to an alcoholic being like, I'm just going to have two drinks a night. You know, we're trying to coexist with these devices. So going back to the idea that I think that we need to be gentle to ourselves when it comes to this. So what I try to do is gauge my success and current status, I guess, like by how quickly I can notice when I'm spending more time than I want to be on my phone. And then how quickly can I get back on track? And I know for myself that my issues are 
texting people and checking the news through the Sue's Safari, because as I said, I don't have the news on my phone, but you can do a workaround, obviously, where you just look at it on Safari and looking at email in Safari, even though I don't have email on my phone. So I try to keep Safari off my phone. So I do find that if I'm stressed out or if I'm really busy, that like Safari will creep back on my phone because, yeah, you can go into the screen time and you can actually disable it. So I like to try to keep checking myself. I call it a tech check and I try to do this once a week at least, if not daily, but particularly before the weekend so that I can kind of clean up my act before the weekend. And I just ask myself, okay, like, what do I want on my phone? What shouldn't be on my phone? Like, what changes have I made this week that I'm not happy with? Past is the past, but let's just get back on track for the weekend and the coming week. So I found that that's been a good approach for me that I recommend to other people. And just, you know, don't expect it's going to be perfect, just as no relationship in life is probably ever going to be perfect. And really nothing in life is ever going to be perfect. And that's okay. (laughs) Right. You just have to continue to work on making it what you want it to be. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Learn from the past and look to the future and just don't waste your energy getting mad at yourself for things that you did in the past. But no, I... I also always ask people, what's something you say that you want to do, but supposedly don't have time for? And I've used that technique on myself because I realized in one moment when I was taking a 24-hour break from my phone and my kid was napping, I couldn't leave the house. And I just realized I didn't actually know what I wanted to do with my time. And it made me kind of sad because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm I'm just waiting for time to pass. And so I asked myself, what do I always say I want to do and don't have time for? And in my case, that was play guitar because I play piano and I have a guitar that I'd never gotten around to learning. And so the next time that I was online, I found an adult music class and signed up for it. And that was like three years ago, I believe. And now, I mean, it's completely changed my life. Like I play guitar once a week with the official class. I get together with people out of class to play music. So it's been very interesting to me that reevaluating my relationship with my phone which seems so mundane, has actually opened up this entirely new world to me that's led to a much more joyful existence for myself. I'm just so much happier with more music in my life. And it's all because I just actually took the time to ask myself what I want to be doing (laughs) that I say I never have time for. Right. Outside of your book, you've mentioned this a couple of times, uh, you'll be offering some new online courses this year. Tell us about those. I'm really excited by some of the things I've been building for screen life balance. I get a lot, a lot, a lot of people telling me that they're struggling with um, social media in particular, and then their attention spans, email, and then uh, what to do about phones and kids, what to do with phones and vacations. Like there's certain subjects that keep cropping up again and again. So I've started building online courses that will be tools for people to actually work on these specific problems. So not just the phone overall, but a specific week-long intervention that you can do on your own to help you, for example, create a healthier relationship with social media. So I'm really excited about that because I just know from the feedback I've gotten from readers of my book that these are areas that people are really struggling with. And then I've also recently launched uh, social media feeds, irony is noted (laughs) by me, (laughs) that they're, but they're intervention feeds. So I figured, you know, intervention is the most effective when you're caught, when you're in the middle of doing the thing that you're trying to change. And so I thought, well, what if I created an automated feed for social media? So right now it's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that actually will show up in your feed while you're in those apps and say things like, do you really want to be on Instagram right now? Or, you know, have you made plans for your weekend yet? Um, I've heard the feeds described as being like cold showers, which made me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really excited about taking this beyond the 
book and giving people kind of customized resources online that they can use to work on their specific areas that they're struggling with. And I always welcome ideas. So if anyone has them, there's a contact form on screenlifebalance.com and they can send it to us so that we can get a sense of what things to prioritize. Sounds great. Very interesting. Catherine Price, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciated all of your great tips for spending a little less time on our phones. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. There you have it. A lot of ideas from Catherine Price on how to check the role that screens are playing in your life. But we wanted to call out one exercise she mentioned for our tweak of the week. Before you pick up your phone, ask yourself three questions. What for? Why now? And what else? If you didn't catch it early in our conversation, the idea is this. When you reach for a device, stop and think about what you're picking up your phone to do. Why now instead of later? And is there something else you could do that would ultimately be more rewarding? If you answer these questions and decide you really do want to use a screen right now, no problem. You'll know it's because of a conscious decision and not just a mindless habit. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now. (music) 